Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in campaigning and community organising. We work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe. Dunstreet develops community engagement and organising strategies to win campaigns, both big and small. Uh, we train engagement staff, volunteers and organisers in leadership and power building and we help leaders craft their own public narrative that tells a story that unites people and moves them to act together. And if you want to create change in your own community in 2023, then hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn have the experience you need on your side when something goes wrong. They know the law inside and out and will explain every detail without legal jargon so you feel comfortable and fully understand your situation. They know how the system works and have the expertise and resources to continue standing up for clients on matters where others might just give up. To find out more, go to their website, which is morrisblackburn.com.au. And finally, today's episode is brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations and events that will energise the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly swift fox crm is made for campaigners by campaigners and to find out more you can simply go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign hello and welcome to another episode of socially democratic your weekly center-left politics and organizing podcast which drops every friday that dives into the progressive campaigns and issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad and home we are today because we are going to be talking to thomas costa who is the Assistant Secretary of Unions in New South Wales, which is the peak uh, union body in the state of New South Wales that uh, has all of the, I think it's 60 affiliated unions that are members of Unions New South Wales. He was the lead negotiator in an 18-month-long dispute uh, over their uh, uh, new enterprise agreement with uh, the New South Wales state government, the Conservative state government, uh, on behalf of six unions that represent transport workers in Sydney and the wider New South Wales area. It's a, it was their, uh, their enterprise agreement that was up for renegotiation and it took 18 months to get a new deal fr- from their employer, the government. It's an amazing story um, and any trade unionist out there that uh, wants to hear about how they uh, managed to strategize and then have to re-strategize through, uh, through a Sydney lockdown and COVID and operating under these new conditions of uncertainty. It's an incredible journey, but in the end, it was a positive result, and it's worth sharing with everyone. We really appreciate Thomas uh, coming on the show today to go through that campaign with us all. So uh, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Uh, And if you like the show, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, uh, and when you're done listening to the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Uh, and for all the latest updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And to everyone out there who tuned into our episode with uh, Premier Dan Andrews last week, it's one of it, one, been one of our biggest episodes we've ever had in terms of um, listenership and downloads. Thank you so much. Thank you for all your f- positive feedback. Thank you for sharing the episode uh, amongst all of your social network uh, platforms and channels. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. And we've obviously got a whole bunch of new listeners that have tuned into Socially Democratic. We want to say welcome to you guys as well. Welcome to, welcome to our global 
socially democratic uh, left-wing family, progressive family, um, this podcast is the place where you can find uh, great stories from people both here in Australia and overseas about the great work they're doing, both organising, broadly speaking, campaigning, a little bit of policy chat, um, but also... um, um, people in leadership and power building and wanted to create change. This is the home for you. So we really are glad you've joined us as well. But let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Wednesday evening on the lands of the Wurundjeri people. And uh, today's episode... Uh, we're going to be talking to the lead negotiator for the successful combined rail unions campaign up in New South Wales uh, that came to a, uh, a positive conclusion late last year after an 18-month-long dispute with the New South Wales state government. And he's joining on the line to unpack this campaign. He is the uh, union's New South Wales Assistant Secretary, Thomas Costa. Welcome to Socially Democratic. Thank you. Great to be here. So it's always good to get a unionist on the show to talk about something super positive that had a great outcome. This campaign obviously um, must have been all-consuming for both you and uh, the union leadership and its members for a long, long period of time. So I really want to use the next hour to really kind of unpack it for folks out there that are either trade unionists that are going through their own campaigns right now or folks that are obviously you know, progressives that are super interested in, in hearing some great wins for the trade union movement. Um, let's begin by talking about um, who were the people? Who was your constituency? Who's the community? Who were the workers that you were you were organising? Where do they work? What kind of work did they perform? How many of them are there? That kind of stuff. Talk us through that. Yeah, sure. I think actually um, it's quite interesting at this point in time where in sort of federal politics we're talking a lot about multi-employer bargaining and industry-wide bargaining and um, really probably the only example of an industry-wide negotiation that exists currently in Australia is Sydney Trains and New South Wales Trains. So our constituents are members who work in the transport network, anything from a cleaner who's cleaning platforms and trains all the way up to train drivers themselves, but people who work on tracks doing maintenance, protection officers who are in the safety of ensuring that workers on the tracks are, are protected. It's an entire, the entire rail industry forms um, the constituency of the, the Sydney Trains, New South Wales Trains agreements. It's a large workforce. It's about thirteen to 15,000 workers, 13 in Sydney Trains and then an additional couple of thousand in New South Wales Trains. Um, and it involves six separate unions who represent all the different types of occupations and classifications across the, that network. So um, really, you know, anything you can think of in association with rail they're covered by this agreement. You know, we've got electricians, we have boilermakers, we have, like I said, drivers, platform staff, customer service operators, protection officers, um, the people who go around and check tickets, and then all the white-collar people who are involved in rostering and scheduling of the trains and so forth as well. And of that uh, 16,000 workers, your the union density roughly across those six unions, how many of those workers were signed up members of their respective union? Yeah, this is um, one of the great assets of this negotiation in that we have probably about 90% density of union membership. It's an extremely high union membership. Um, so that is one of the, the really good advantages when you're doing the CA that you know you have 
most of the, the employees signed up. So you're starting from a position of strength, notionally speaking, anyway. It's not just having being a member of unions. It's going to then, you know, it's going to not going to be a lay down in a campaign, but you know, it certainly is a lot easier than coming from a position where you're less than fifty percent of the workforce, right? Oh, definitely, and it does. I mean, it saves you one step in a negotiation in that you don't really need to, and at least we we don't we we do a little bit of it because there's obviously there's that ten percent that's sort of hanging around that we try to recruit, but you don't spend a lot of time on recruitment and planning for this this type of bargain because you know you've got most of the members and you can start focusing directly on educating and activating those members rather than having to do a big recruitment drive before commencing the negotiation. In the process of mapping with a campaign and getting a sense of your own constituency, and we'll talk about the opposition in a moment, I mean, was there was there an existing leadership? And when I mean leadership, I don't mean by uh, uh, union trade union officials i'm talking about the, the leadership of the of the workforce like delegate structures was there a good strong delegate structure across all of the different unions that you could actually work with yeah look i, I feel like um I'm, I'm i'm talking to all the advantages that there were there are a lot of disadvantages in, in this negotiation but but don't um, worry, thomas another... we'll, we'll get to them eventually for sure <laughs> um but yeah another advantage we do have and, and it comes from the fact that this is a really old workplace. Rail's been around for a long time and the unions have been in there for a long time. So the delegate structures are quite sophisticated. They're quite broad. Our our bargaining unit, which is the unit that, that attends all of the negotiations, is 80-plus officials and delegates. The majority are delegates. Um, and, and by that, I mean like work, they're workers who do their union role voluntarily. They don't have full-time union positions they're definitely on the tools. Um, and then we have chains that go all the way down from them to, to the um, grassroots membership. So the delegate structure is really quite strong. There's really good email chains, WhatsApp groups, Facebook groups, all of those sorts of mechanisms in place that allows us to, to talk to the members um, quite quickly and, and get out accurate information early. But also coming back to what you said about mapping when we start planning for this negotiation, which usually starts around six months before the, the end of the previous agreement, we are very easily able to find out what the concerns from members are and start to put together our logs and start talking to them about potential strategies that we're going to develop through the negotiation as well. Were there initial challenges in trying to bring together six independent unions and establish you know a common goals a shared purpose um i, I can't imagine that would be an easy thing that we, was there ever any no, conflicting interests or any of that kind of stuff that you had to sort of deal with yeah. early it, it is challenging um you're right it's probably a little bit easier now than when i first started um working in this area because we've, we've got a bit of a history together and a lot of the officials have experience working with each other across the different unions, but you do have inherent challenges, which is different unions have different classifications of members, and because of that, there are different interests. Um, and then, so ensuring that you can align those interests, but also maintain the solidarity amongst the different unions and maintain a single strategy is difficult. That's part of the reason Unions New South Wales is actually involved. In this negotiation, our role predominantly is to coordinate those six unions 
to bring them together um, and to make sure that if we do have conflict or disputes, we're dealing with it as unions behind closed doors and not allowing that to affect the negotiation or jeopardise anyone's um, interest during those negotiations. We have some very clear principles that we set down at the beginning of planning for the negotiation. We have a memorandum of understanding that all the unions sign up to. One of the principles that, that um, is, has been maintained over a number of years and something we we're really firm about is that no union will sign off on an, an agreement until all unions are happy with it. So we don't move forward until you know every union is happy to move forward. Um, and that can be challenging, especially when you know one union feels like all their claims have been resolved and they just want to get the, the EA done and then there's another union holding out over something that's a bit more difficult. Um, but ultimately, that means everyone's looked after, even the weaker groups and members are looked after, and we don't just have a situation where the employees are able to split us and, and appeal only to the, the stronger members. So let's talk about the opposition in this campaign. Who were they um, and uh, what kind of relationship had you had with them in the past prior to this round of negotiations? Yeah, I think it's probably important to, to talk about just how um, unique this this employer is because essentially Sydney and New South Wales Trans are state-owned corporations. So they act as corporate entities. When we negotiate, we're technically negotiating with management, with the, um, the, the chief executives of those state-owned corporations. But... Because it is a government-owned entity and, it, and it's run by Transport for New South Wales, we have these other players that come into the negotiation and have a significant influence over how the negotiation goes. And that, that starts with the Secretary of Transport for New South Wales, but then moves upwards towards the Minister for Transport and ultimately um, to the Minister for Industrial Relations and, and the Premier. So when we're developing a strategy for negotiations, we've had to be a little bit aware of how the politics is going to play into the negotiation. Um, and in the past, this, this I have to say this CA played out very differently than what we expected, but in the past, um, what's typically happened is we've started negotiating with the, the corporation, the corporate entities, um, we've negotiated the majority of claims and then on the final sticking points, the minister has stepped in and we've been able to just kind of broker the final deal with the minister at that point. Um, and that's sort of the typical way that it's happened. Over, you know, I'd say over the last sort of three to four years, the relationship with the government hasn't been good between the unions and the minister and, and the government. So... Um, we were quite wary about that heading into this negotiation that when we got to that stage of, of dealing with the politicians that it was going to get really tricky and um, unfortunately at the start of the negotiation there was also no one in our bargaining team that had any connection or, or communication with the, with the Minister or the Government to know where they were heading with that. So we weren't getting very good intel about where the government was going to head with this negotiation as we went into it, whereas normally we do have sometimes some some communication coming to us from the minister about what their expectation is. 
heading into these negotiations, did you were your expectations to be? Um, I mean, granted, it is a it's a it's a it's a coalition or a conservative state government, but you've had the state government, unfortunately, in New South Wales for a while. It's been conservative. I'm sure we've had other negotiations in the past with them. Did you enter into those negotiations with the expectation that you know you'd have a log of claims, you'd have to bargain, some things would come off, some things you would win, but primarily you should be able to wrap this up within a nice time frame for the workers to be delivered. You know, new wage increases and hopefully strengthened conditions in their multiple EBAs or one EBA or whatever it may be? Yeah, look, I think naively we did. Um, we probably shouldn't have thought that, but I think naively we thought this will be a fairly straightforward negotiation. It might be tough. There'll probably be industrial action. There'll probably be some in political interference, but ultimately um, it will play out like a straightforward negotiation. We will start bargaining we'll negotiate a number of our claims, we'll get to the sticking points on these major items, the minister will intervene um, and we will sort those out with the minister and then we will um, sign off on an agreement. Um, I probably didn't think it would happen within six months, but definitely thought we would be well on our way to, to signing off and, and having a, an agreement voted up by the sort of 10 to 11 month mark. Broadly speaking, what were your what was the claims on behalf of the six unions? What were you looking for in in this new round of negotiations? Yeah, so um, we had one hundred and fifty claims, which sounds like a lot because, but remember, it's a very large workforce. It's got lots of different classifications. There's quite a few unions, um, so it, it's not as as big as it sounds. Typically, though, it, it was still bigger than a typical Sydney trains, New South Wales trains negotiation. Typically, we have about 30 claims. So it was, it was larger. Um, but of those claims, there was probably about 18 to 20 major claims. Um, and they included things, well, the number one thing was safety, and it concerned a new train that um, Transport for New South Wales had been trying to introduce on, onto the network for about six years. Uh, our concern was that that train was not safe for passengers and it needed modifications before it would be safe. And so one of our major claims was to have that train modified to include those safety measures before our members had to work on it or drive it um, because our members were quite adamant that they would not operate a train that they believed was unsafe to the public. Mm. Um, so that was the, the very big sort of the major claim sitting there. But then underneath that was a number of other things that concerned the operation of the previous agreement, which had caused a lot of frustration for members. And that was things like a disciplinary clause that allowed people to be suspended for 12 months from work without being told why, um, which was leading to really stressful, in some cases quite dangerous situations where people were becoming really uncertain about what's happening with their employment. And they were on they were suspended effectively on reduced pay because they were suspended on a base rate. They don't get their allowances. And so that was putting people in a, a really stressful position. We wanted to fix that. Again, rostering was a problem. There was a lot of problems with how people were being rostered without very clear um, notice of what their rostering would be from changing sort of pattern of work from day to day and week to week. We wanted to fix the process around how that sort of worked. 
Um, another major item for all the unions and all the members was our redundancy conditions. Um, effectively, uh, the employers had come to the, the initial bargain and said that they wanted to remove all of our redundancy provisions that were additional to the rest of the public sector and put us onto the base level. That would have essentially reduced people's redundancy entitlements by about two thirds. And because of the concern constantly in transport, particularly in a public owned transport company of privatisation, employees are always very hyper aware of any um, move to reduce their redundancy conditions. They see that as the first sign that there will be privatisation. So we wanted to preserve their redundancy entitlements. That was a major claim for us as well. And then probably um, the last really significant claim was 20 days paid family domestic violence leave. And this, we were seeking this claim well before the change in federal government and the change in, in the federal government position on this. But that was something we wanted to ensure that um, these members were entitled to. In the previous EA, Sydney Trains had been the first public sector employer to bring in paid domestic violence leave, but it was only seven days. The world had moved on from then. We know that we needed a little bit more, and so we were seeking 20 days paid domestic and family violence leave. So you've got this substantial log of claims um, and you go in and meet with uh, the company, uh, their log of claims. Were they asking for a, a similar type of list or were they just in there saying no to yours? Talk us through what they wanted out of this negotiation. Yeah, so we, well, we've gone through our six months planning process. We educated our members in the EA. We talked to our delegates. We were ready to bargain. We had our subject matter experts all ready to articulate our claims. We get to our first meeting with the employers and they say, look, we, we don't want to negotiate anything. We want to vary the agreement and extend it for six months and we'll give you a 0.3% pay rise. And like, that completely caught us off guard because like I've, I've said to you, we have quite an extensive membership. We speak to our members. We know what they want. So we just sort of looked at them and said, well, there's no way this is going to get voted up. There's just no way. Why are we even discussing it? Um, it's going to be a waste of time. And they stared us down and said, no, we think we know your members better than you do. We're going to persist with this variation. We're not going to negotiate with you any further. We're going out with a variation. We're going to take it out to the membership. And they did that. They delayed our negotiation probably by about two to three months by going through this process. It was knocked over overwhelmingly no vote. It was about, I think it was a 96% no vote, um, as you would expect. That there was no way our members were going to accept you know, essentially a 0% pay increase to their, their wages and, and, and cop the same conditions that they wanted to reform. But that was, that was the first sort of move by the employees in the negotiation. And that's the first point where we realised this was going to be a far more aggressive negotiation than we had expected. I love the... Um... The, the twist in the story that comes early in the second act straight away catches everyone off by surprise. Um, what do you think lay behind this strategy or this position from, from the government or from the company about rolling over the agreement and offering such a pissant um, wage increase? I think, I think a number of things. I think the government had gone out to the public sector 
And that's what they had given the rest of the public sector, a 0.3% pay increase, um, which was quite shocking. And they could do that because most of the public sector in New South Wales is not employed in the federal system. They don't have the same rights to bargain and to take industrial action um, that private employees of private companies do. And in Sydney Trains and New South Wales Trains, because it's a state-owned corporation, they do have the same rights as, as um, employees of private companies. So we, I think that was part of it. They wanted to be consistent with government and they're going to use this as a way to, to try and, as an excuse to try and pressure us. Um, I think the other thing was they had a strategy, and this evolved over the, the next couple of months of bargaining, it became very clear. They had a strategy of delay and surface bargain. And I think that strategy was partially, they wanted to stress our members to a point where they would be willing to accept a lesser offer than what they were seeking because the longer negotiations go on, the longer our members are without a pay rise. Um, and I think also, you know, having looked at, looking at it now, looking backwards at the entire negotiation, I think there was a clear strategy to try and move us into the territory of terminating the enterprise agreement. So the longer they could negotiate with us, surface bargain with us and show that there hadn't been much progress, the better chance they would have been to take, go to the Fair Work Commission and say, oh, we don't think there's any value in negotiating any further. We want the EA terminated and we want to move these employees onto the award, which would have seen them lose about 30 to 40% of their paying entitlements. Uh, Thomas, that term you just used, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, surface, surface bargaining, just explain that to us. Yeah, so what I mean by that is um, yeah, they would turn up to meetings, particularly during the second COVID lockdown when the meetings were online, and they would talk around claims or they would talk, ask a lot of questions about our claims, but they showed no intention to actually engage with the claim in any real form. So if you picture yourself going in to negotiate you know, a, a term of your contract with your employer, it's you have a meeting with them, you talk to them for about an hour, the meeting ends, you schedule a follow-up meeting, when you come to the follow-up meeting, you have exactly the same discussion again for an hour, but yet at no point has your employer said, yeah, I'm going to give you a pay rise or not. You know, so they weren't making decisions about any of the claims that we were putting forward. They were just meeting, nodding, asking a lot of questions, sometimes intentionally trying to antagonise our delegates, like manipulating the format because, like I said, we've had 80 or so delegates in the bargaining room for a good period of that lockdown. We are doing it online. So we would have managers just call out random delegates and start asking them questions directly rather than going through the lead negotiators um, as a way to just try and disrupt the process, slow it down, antagonise us. Paint a, picture for the, paint a picture of the room for us. How many are there on the management side sitting in those negotiations? How many are there on the uh, worker side? So on the management side, there's about 20 you know, representatives of management. Um, you know, and that's everyone from the chief executives, some representatives of from Transport for New South Wales who seem to be in charge of their negotiation strategy. They have lawyers in the room. Um, they have a number of media and comms people that I assume are there sort of preparing their comms to go out to their employees at the end of each meeting, but also to 
for their note um, keeping. There's a number of people on their side that just never talk. We've been in, I think we had about 500 hours of meetings by the end of it. Um, and, you know, there was some, there's probably 10 or so people from management that I never heard speak once. We're just sitting there, so I'm not sure what their role is. Um, but on our side, there's, there's roughly 80 of us. There's probably about 10 union officials, like that's paid employed union officials. Um, from the, the six different unions, each union sending about one or two paid um, paid employees, depending on on the size of the union's representation, um, and then the rest are delegates of ours. Um, and you know, those delegates who who attend the bargaining are our senior delegates. Most of them are subject matter experts that we can call on to speak specifically to to different claims, um, and so. The, you know, for the most part, it's not all 80 people talking every meeting. It's generally myself and then maybe a couple of other union officials and then whoever is the, the subject matter expert delegate at that point in time is also going to speak in that meeting. And, and we planned um, how we would do that structure before we even started bargaining. So we had planned what claims we wanted to talk about in which week of bargaining, who those speakers should be, um, which union should speak to those clients, and, and then could have a quite a, a disciplined process going through because there was a lot of work to get through and you want to make sure you're using your time most effectively. So you've got this negotiating strategy. You guys are clearly well organised. As you said, you've gone through a lot of meticulous planning and preparation and you go into these meetings and then they hit you in the very first one and say, no, no, we don't want to do that. We want to do, we just want to roll this over. Can you remember the moment and then all of a sudden they start this surface bargaining, uh, which is basically, you know, pissing in your pocket. Can you recall the moment when you realised, you as a group realised, this is not business as usual, this is not going to go down the way that we first uh, foresaw and what was your first step? What did you start to do to re-strategize? So I think when they did the variation strategy, I think our initial reaction is these guys are incompetent and know what they're talking about. We'll just knock that over with a no vote and it'll be back to bargaining as normal. I don't think we really felt this is a sign that they're trying something different or they're going to be more aggressive. It just seemed like incompetence. Um, and so we came out of the sort of successful no vote of that feeling quite strong that we'd shown them. Obviously, the members listened to us over 90% have voted against your proposal. Now it's time to listen to us and sit down and negotiate. Once we got into the, the meetings online, though, I think that's a point where the light bulb went off and we realised this is starting to fall apart. Um, and um, you know, I'm grateful to your comment saying we're really well organised, but at that point we weren't as well organised as we should have been. We hadn't we had never foreseen bargaining online and no one had any experience having done bargaining online, particularly with a group this size. So that caught us off guard. And, you know, I think we lost a few weeks trying, scrambling, trying to figure out what was happening. Um, the employees divided the meetings into two days a week. The, there were different people invited to different meetings. They were asking questions randomly of, of different delegates and not focusing on who was meant to be talking, time was getting away from us. And at that point, 
we pulled it in as a caucus and we had to think, well, how are we going to, we need a strategy to deal with Zoom meetings, basically. <laughs> like we need, we needed a strategy for the technology. Um, and, and we worked on one and you know, it wasn't, wasn't the perfect strategy by any means, but it, it worked for us and it just became, we had to be even more disciplined than what we thought we were before. We had a, we set up a WhatsApp group in which every single um, bargaining delegate was put into that group. No one was allowed to talk without first either being on the, the run sheet, which we would go through in caucus in the morning before the meeting. So we would meet with our delegates and officials, you know, probably nine o'clock in the morning, spend an hour with them, go through our run sheet of what we wanted to talk about, who was going to speak to each claim, um, and then we would enter into the meeting. And if someone on our side thought, oh, I've got a really good point I want to raise, rather than just jumping in on the Zoom, which would then start to confuse things, they had to go through the WhatsApp group. We would then approve it, lead negotiated, if it was me or, or one of the other officials, if they were taking over at that point in time, would then call on them to speak and then we would close it. Um, and that way we started to become really disciplined about how the meetings went through. And other than that, we we wouldn't talk unless we had been um, notified to do it. That Once we started doing that, the employers started to get really frustrated, like extremely frustrated. Um, so much so that, that we realised that this must have been a strategy by theirs to waste time because they would start, we would start getting through things much quicker and they would start calling on different people just randomly, just saying, hey, Joe, can you give us your opinion on this claim or whatever? And, and the delegate would say, I'm, I'm not talking to this. This is it's not my turn to speak. The negotiator is talking this item. Um, and at that point, they, they would start to, well, why, why aren't you talking? They get really aggressive and start really pushing. At one point, they were accusing delegates of chewing gum while they were sitting on the Zoom screen. Um, it was all, like some fairly petty childish stuff started to happen. So it, from our perspective, we felt like we'd regained control of the negotiating room at that point. That's fantastic. I'm just thinking, I mean, initially, when was this, at what point in the COVID two-year black hole um, was this, particularly because the New South Wales, the experience is different in Victoria. I mean, we felt like we we're always in lockdown, but w- when was this, uh, when, when, when did this happen at this particular moment where you all jumped on Zoom? So this is mid 2021. So the first lockdowns of 2020. In Sydney, we start to go into our second lockdowns mid 2021. Okay. So we'd started negotiating um, around May 2021. That's when we sort of started really talking to them. And then by, I think by about June, we're in lockdown again. And while we're in that lockdown period, we started doing these meetings online. And so that's where this frustration builds for about probably two months of us going through this process. And talking about operating under in conditions of uncertainty, when you're on Zoom, you've never done this before, you've got a huge group of people to coordinate. Uh, there's some things you really can't control on Zoom, like the company could message directly your delegates as well. Like there's a lot, there's a lot of things could be happening below yeah, the surface so you're not aware of. Good that you point that out because we also the other thing we had to do was stop people using the chat on on Zoom and Teams because it, you know none of us not, not even myself I don't want to just say our, our members and delegates none of us had negotiated using Teams and Zoom 
So people were just putting things into the chat, like, oh, this is wrong, or that's right, or good point. You know, some of it seemingly innocuous, but it, private messages that should have just been kept to our caucus that shouldn't be exposed to the employer, and also the risk that the employer is getting a transcript of this printed out at the end of each day, that could pose a risk further on down the track if there's litigation or something. So we had to bring in rules about not using um, any of the chat forums or anything that, that were being provided by the employer. Um, you know, the, we, we inserted that we wanted these the conversations to be confidential and so no, no, no transcripts going out to, to staff afterwards. But yeah, it was, it was tricky. It's, it's also tricky negotiating from your bedroom as well and not sort of being able to say, like, oh, look, let's just call time out and go have a coffee and talk to one or two people. Like, each time we call time out, you're talking to your entire 80 delegates at any point in time. There's no point, no way of, you know, these are the kind of, I think, ad hoc things you don't think about in a normal negotiation, but you might say, pause a negotiation step out of the room and, and just walk over to one or two delegates or one or two officials and say, oh, mate, on this point, can you jump in on this? Or what do you think about this? Each time we call timeout, you're in a caucus with 80 people, so it takes a lot longer. You've got to talk to everyone, and then everyone brings in different opinions. So just working out ways through that was, was tricky. And then I suppose the other thing that's in the background when you're online is while you're in lockdown, there's not much point taking industrial action. No one's catching the trains. Um, and we didn't know how long we were going to be in lockdown. And so as we were getting more like into the negotiation and our members were getting more agitated about the progress and the surface bargaining, the fear in the back of my mind is we had an a industrial action strategy and an escalation plan that was meant to sort of come into effect when certain milestones weren't being met. And yet there was no point in us bringing that out because, you know, you just stop the trains. Nobody's on the trains. Mm -hmm. All that happens is your members don't get paid. So that was also another thing kind of playing in the back of our minds, like what are we going to do if this lockdown continues for a really long period of time? We were still operating the network. There were a few people still catching the trains. So the, the network hadn't been shut down. But, you know, it wasn't going to have the impact that it needed to if we were going to try and pressure the government for a better deal. So as the negotiations continue on, you're in lockdown, you're operating under this sort of new condition. Um, my, my, my next question actually is about relationships because just like after a negotiation meeting and you'll go out and have a, have a dart and have a bit of a chat with each other, those incidental but intentional moments are important for you as a negotiator and as a, as a, and a, as a party official, or sorry, as a union official or as a, an organiser with your people to see how we're going, how are they feeling? Um, but when you're in lockdown, as you said, you're all in isolation in your own homes. How did the six unions manage to maintain building strong relationships, good communication norms with not just the 80 delegates that are in the room, in the room, air quotes, but also then out into the workforce as well? I don't think we really got those really close relationships till we came out of lockdown so we were there was obviously a lot of phone calls all through the week the officials were calling each other discussing how the meetings had gone what we could do better um you know and then those officials would be calling delegates and we had the whatsapp group which i think 
helped start to build a bit of bond between delegates, especially ones from different unions, because they were now in the same group and they were talking to each other. And you could see when a subject matter expert was talking to a certain claim, it would jump on and say, you know, good job. There was a lot of support coming through that, which I think was That's helpful. But I didn't feel really that kind of strong relationship with my delegates until we decided to get back into the room together. In fact, I can remember, and this could also just be having been in lockdown for a couple of months and so you're a bit socially awkward when you, you haven't spoken to people or been in a group environment, but I can remember coming into our first negotiating live meeting after the lockdowns and actually feeling a bit nervous talking to my group of delegates in a physical space because now I've got 80 people in front of me and I'm looking in all different directions because I'm not looking at a screen. Um, and you're not and, in your pyjamas you know, either. I'm not in my, exactly, not, not in my tracky dad. That's all I'm doing. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, 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 I can remember that quite vividly. Obviously, like very quickly, once we're in the room together, those bonds are, were built really quickly. And the camaraderie within um, the first two weeks of the physical meetings, I think we, it was a really tight um, group and you know there were moments in that it was an intensive negotiation pretty early once we came out of the lockdown where we spent two weeks every day bargaining and I can remember the final meeting and doing the final debrief of that intensive and every delegate got up to talk about you know, the solidarity of the group what the rest of the group meant to them and that was a really powerful moment actually for me in the negotiation at that point is when I really really believe that there was no way we could lose because the commitment to each other was really strong. Let's take a quick break to talk about SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, absolutely. Phone banks uh, that can change minds. Emails that drive donations and events that will energize the community online and offline. And text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Okay, let's so the company have clearly got this strategy and they're dragging it out. Uh, and now you're in, you're in lockdown. You're negotiating on Zoom. Uh, talk to me about how you guys re-strategize. What were your – because obviously, you, I mean, you already flagged that you would had planned to do some form of industrial action. Can't do that because you're all in lockdown. What, what was the thought process in terms of uh, – and I guess, you know, thinking about the power analysis, identifying what resources you have and how can you use them to leverage to create the change you're seeking. What did you do as a group to start to re-strategize now? Yeah, so we, we were getting a lot of pressure from our members and from the delegates and the bargaining delegates about what could be done in this situation because we would have our debrief and, you know, some of the more, more vocal delegates would just be, what are we doing? Like, this is going nowhere. The members don't know what, what's happening. You know, why is this taking so long? And, and there was a lot of anger towards the employer, but we were also at risk of that anger starting to be directed towards the unions and the delegates themselves and start to take responsibility for what was happening. Um, and so we we really did sort of have to sit down and look at our original strategy. And, and our original strategy had a very clear escalation plan for industrial action. So, you know, if things didn't happen by a certain time, we would start the process to get 
ballots and everything in order to approve industrial action and then start taking different types of industrial action and, and they were linked to different types of um, milestones through the through the EA. We we had to, I, we had to pull that back up and say, okay, well, what can we salvage from this to try and put pressure on management, even though we're no longer um, no longer going to have the same impact as if we were operating the network at full capacity. And what we did was, we thought, well, we we firstly we need to just get the protected action ballots and all that process out of the way. So as soon as this lockdown ends, we're ready to go full steam if we need to. Um, so we, we put in our ballots and started getting that process in. The second thing we did, we start to look through our escalation strategy and start picking out the things that would still have an impact on management, even though the network wasn't operating in the normal way. And so that included some like different types of industrial action that we didn't used to focus on as much in the past. Things like you know, we had um, our people in the white collar section who handled complaints about services. They started changing all of their email signatures to talk about what was going on in bargaining. Um, everyone was told not to wear uniform, to wear union shirts. So there would be this very visible display to management of support for for the union and for the the campaign, um, we would have we had technology bans, which meant an employee, if they were asked to use any form of technology, could refuse to use it, and that didn't mean that they had to refuse to use it all the time. That meant they could do it selectively, and so we would have a situation where employees, if they didn't like a certain type of work, if it involved a phone or a computer or something, they would just say, "No, we're not doing it." Um, and so those things, little things like that that we knew would irritate management a lot and make things a little bit difficult um, as we were starting to come out. Fortunately, because we had gone through that process, um, once the lockdowns ended, we were able to escalate really quickly into overtime bans, um, which then started to have a really strong impact on the, the government's plan to try and move everyone back to normal working and to get people back into the city so um as we're coming out of lockdown the fact that we didn't have to wait you know a couple of weeks to go through this the bargain the balloting process and so forth to get everything in line you know we had those ducks in a row and it worked out for us fortunately but that was a risk we didn't know how long the lockdown was going to last so when did you feel the shift in power from uh the government to the workers the, the moment the lockdown ended. Right. So the moment the lockdown, and, and it, it shifted back at different times, but the moment the lockdown ended, the government in New South Wales was coming out with very strong rhetoric about we want people back in the city, we want people back on transport. You know, that was a, a, a very sort of popular language by the Premier at the time and this unique position where we already had our industrial action approved by the Commission and we started to put on the overtime bans to start to, to ratchet it up. And everything in transport in Sydney gets a lot of media attention. So as soon as we started doing a little bit of that, the media was onto it. Um, they started talking about our claims. The media was particularly interested in our major claim because it was about safety and, and safety of passengers. And so we were able to just get that message out there really clearly 
on the hook of the, the overtime bans. And almost immediately, I was getting phone calls from the secretary and then from the, the transport minister saying, what do we need to do? Like, what can we do to make this stop? Um, and so that's where I felt, you know, that was the first point where I thought, look, we're, we're on to something here. The plan is working. You know, we just need to stick with our strategy and we're going to get there. But um, that, it felt like that at that moment. At other moments further down the track, it seemed to go the other way. But at that point in time, coming out of those lockdowns, it felt very positive for us. And coming out of those lockdowns, from memory, that's sort of uh, September, October 2021, right? And the it didn't this campaign didn't come to a resolution until um, November last year. Yeah. So there's still another 12 months to go. Um, but you, yeah. you're now getting the secretary and other people within government on the telephone. So you've now started to get to the real decision makers. What happened in that yeah. 12 month period? Yeah, so that got you to the climax. At that point in time, when when they first picked up the phone to us and said, you know, they said all the right things. We, what's the problem? You know, we raised the issues of surface bargaining. We're not getting anywhere. We're wasting our time. We just want to negotiate properly. We don't think we're that far apart. Um, you know, we'd like to have an intensive period to make up for the fact that we wasted all this time in lockdown. Uh, they agreed to that. They brought in a new chief executive, brand new. They got rid of the last one. We, there were certain negotiators that they were using that we said we didn't want to negotiate with anymore because they had been you know, antagonising and, and attacking delegates personally. We didn't think that the relationship of trust between us and them was good enough to achieve an agreement, so they removed them. And we had this very, I, I thought, quite productive first week of intensive bargaining we articulated our claims quite well. Um, it looked like they were listening. The second week wasn't as productive, but it was still good. Um, we moved on a number of our sort of smaller claims, and one of our our strategies had been to try and resolve small claims before we got to big claims. Mm. So it's a fairly straightforward strategy, but the point is that if you solve the big things, you know, 90% of your members are going to vote the EA up on those big things and then the 10% who need those little things miss out. So you want to get them out of the way first. We moved quite considerably on, on a number of the smaller claims. Um, and then we came out of that intensive bargaining and things started to fall over again. And that that's when I think at that point, I think prior to the intensive bargaining, I think government actually had a strategy at that point They'd seen what we could do. They could see the discipline of the members. They saw the industrial action and the negative media, and they had decided they wanted this to go away. They were trying to solve it, um, and we were well on our way to getting it done. And then as we got towards the end of the year, I think probably government's position shifted to actually there might be a win for government if we antagonise the unions and we push them into more industrial action and we turn this into a political fight because we... The same pattern repeated itself about three or four times where we would agree to something, they would come back a week later and say, no, 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 we never agreed to that. Mm. Expect us to take industrial action and then go to the media and say, oh, look at this big bad union who's inconveniencing the public. Um, and so I think that was a deliberate strategy for them. That led to, I think, why it took so much longer because we got caught up in this what essentially was a political fight 
rather than just a straightforward negotiation. Um, remind me, who was the Premier in New South Wales at that moment? Is it... so it, it's Perrottet. At that point in time, yeah. Perrottet is the Premier. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Perrottet. Um, and, but we had, a, at the end of 2021, so we dealt with about six different ministers in this, which was also another problem. Um, we started off with Andrew Constance at the beginning of negotiations. Then we had Rob Stokes for a little bit, and Rob Stokes was the one that um, agreed to the intensive bargaining, who I think was, his view was, let's just try and get this resolved as quickly as possible. The, the union's claims make sense for the most part. You know, they weren't going to agree to everything, but they were willing to to talk to us about modifying the unsafe train and our major claims. And then Stokes moves portfolio, and we have um, Minister Elliott is involved. He doesn't meet us for a long while um, until after Christmas, and we start dealing with him. And then later on down the track, we start to see the Minister for Industrial Relations gets involved, Natalie Wood, another minister gets involved, um, and things start to get a little bit trickier as well. Whilst this is going on in in, in the in la, over the period of last year, as we're sort of getting closer to November, how are you keeping your members tight on this issue? Because this yeah. is going on for a while now, right? So the most important thing in an area this size, like when you've got this many members, is you've got to have so much communication. Like the more communication, the better. Um, I was told when I first started negotiating rail agreements that you want to be communicating with your members so much that they tell you to stop telling us stuff. Like you just the keep method. bombarding them with comms. So we, like one of the reasons we would have a debrief at the end of each EA meeting wasn't just to get everyone's views on what had happened and how the day it went. It was also to write up our comms. And I wanted to make sure that everyone had input on that and that we could put that together and then distribute it to people straight away because if we left it for a day, it starts to become stale and then, you know, by the time you get it out to the members, the employers already put out their comms to staff. So we we aim to have comms to members the same night of each bargaining meeting. Um, and if that meant we, we had five bargaining meetings that week, we would have five communications out to, to them that week and we would just summarise everything that was happening we tried to keep the language very neutral. I think it's patronising to put out kind of rhetorical information to members about you know, how bad the employer is and they did this and that. I think members can figure it out for themselves when we just talk to them directly to the facts. Um, and they've got their delegates to find out about all of that anyway. So what they needed from us is this is the position we put, this is what they've said, this is what we're going to try and do these are the things that you can do. And we would have you know, links to different websites where we're posting things all the time, social media things. We were, we were running some social media campaigns in the background that we were trying to get members involved in as well. So we were giving them things that they could also do um, to support the campaign, but also trying to make sure they were completely abreast of what was happening. Um, probably, you know, it's sad to think that probably an advantage that we had was these members have been really badly treated for the past three years. There'd been a real campaign by management of bullying and harassment, and which was one of why one of our 
major claims was to resolve the disciplinary clause and and how people were being treated under that clause. Because of that behaviour, there wasn't a lot of trust for management from our members. Um, they definitely trusted their union a lot more. And so that meant when we were communicating with them, they, they, were, they were looking to our communications for an accurate recollection of what was happening. Communication goes both ways. Did you have uh, processes or channels by which the membership could then funnel back to you guys how they were feeling yeah. or their their, uh, their concerns or interests or whatnot? Yeah, and it wasn't always positive because um, sometimes in in those kinds of strategies that you have not necessarily the majority voice, but the loudest voice definitely comes through. There was a lot of anti-vaxxer stuff coming through at some points because we were right through this lockdown period, the COVID period. So um, we, we ended up polling our members when we found that's a very, very small minority, but it was quite loud through our channels about that we should have things in the EA around vaccinations and things like that. Um, but then also, you know, we got... Good feedback. We obviously got you know considerable negative feedback when members thought we were doing the wrong thing. Often our negative feedback was we need to take more industrial action. That was often what our members were saying to us, which I take as a really good sign because that means I know when we do need to take industrial action, there's going to be a lot of support for it. And you know, in some other negotiations, that's actually a hard thing to do to get your members to to take industrial action. So knowing that you've got quite a militant workforce or a workforce that's quite ready to participate in industrial action is a is a strength um and that we just needed to you know explain to those members that industrial action was going to happen but it was going to happen on our timeline not the government's timeline because it did seem like at some points during the negotiation government was trying to bait us into industrial action you know, their, their behaviour was deliberately antagonistic to try and force us into doing things that could have jeopardised how we appeared in the media, how we appeared to the community um, and wouldn't have helped us in the negotiation. You mentioned before that you use the media as a resource for your campaign uh, in a positive way uh, to frame, you, frame your campaign up to the, the wider public. Are there other resources outside of strictly the you know the constituency the workforce uh, and the unions uh to leverage or build power to try and get some breakthroughs what else did you, what other things did you try and do over that period of time yeah well because it's public transport you know, there's there's obviously the political dimension so um you know the government is involved and pressuring the government's important and there's also the, the fact that the community uses public transport is quite invested in how public transport is run. So that meant, you know, we in terms of the media, we wanted to use media to try and communicate to those stakeholders, to the community about what we were doing and why we we're doing it, and then vicariously put pressure on government to support our claims. But that also meant we wanted a strategy to deal directly with community as well. So we, we used um, a number of social media campaign tools in order to do that. Um, we couldn't do sort of traditional type things during the lockdown period. You know, other things that we would have normally do was hand out leaflets on trains, mm. do announcements on trains. And we did start doing that once we came out of lockdown. So the, the drivers would make announcements on the trains to passengers about why 
um, there was industrial action ongoing on, on what the dispute was about. But probably more effective was we started doing a number of, of online and social media campaigns, leveraging off the interest that everyone has in public transport and then using it to get them to sign up, to get updates about what was happening in rail. And we would then explain what this dispute was about, why this, you know, the, the unions were so concerned about the safety of the public and then getting the community to sign up on that and mapping out where they were in terms of marginal seats or government seats um, and running email campaigns off that so making sure that marginal MPs knew this was a really important issue to their constituents and then also government MPs knew it was a really important issue as well. Did you find that the attitude towards the workforce from the wider public had shifted in a far more positive light after COVID? I just felt that certainly after COVID, you know, I think that the community has a greater respect for our health workers. I think they have a greater respect for retail workers and people working. It's like essentially that essential workforce that had to keep going to work every day while the rest of us sat in our knowledge economy jobs at our desks at home. Um, coming out of COVID, did, did you notice that there was a shift in attitude towards um, the members and therefore you probably got a little bit more licence to do more things in terms of using those resources, withdrawing your labour, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, with, with, like I felt that way, whether it's, it's true or not. Definitely I felt the media was giving us a softer run than they had in the past. Um, they were more open to listen to our side of the story. Um, whereas in previous negotiations, they would often just run the government side and and kind of give us lip service in terms of our version. But they were definitely more open to it. One line that I think came through a lot during this negotiation that we tried to get out there as much as possible was there had been, during the, the lockdowns, there had been very serious discussions with... Um, Transport for New South Wales about shutting down the transport network because of the risk that COVID played to people working on the network. And the unions had actually said, we and, and our members also had agreed to this, we actually think we should keep the network running for those people who will need it. You know, if, if someone who doesn't drive, or doesn't have the ability to of other transport who needs to get to a hospital, needs to get somewhere during that period, we need to keep the transport network running. And so the unions had worked with the government to keep that network open at risk to their own members. And, and the members accepted that risk as well for those reasons. And I think that resonated with the public when our members were out there saying, like, I turned up to work with all this extra PPE. Our cleaners particularly had to do all this additional cleaning, keep the train safe using all sorts of harsh chemicals. Um, which, which became a, a, a story that ran during the campaign quite a bit. And articulate, and I think the public was quite sympathetic to that because they could see these workers have worked all through the COVID period. Uh, they hadn't had a break off. They didn't get to work from home. They took considerable risk at a time when we didn't know whether, how dangerous COVID was um, and when no one was vaccinated. And the first offer the government had given to them, which it stuck to for the first... 10 or so months of negotiations was a 0.3% pay rise. Mm. Um, I think the public sympathised with that. Later on in the negotiations, we started doing our own polling to try and figure out where the public was. And what we found 
um, from the polling was they didn't necessarily support unions. They didn't necessarily support us as the union officials, but they definitely supported the workers. And their view was if a number of unions were complaining about the government, something must be wrong with the government. But if one union was complaining, they weren't quite sure. But wherever they heard workers' voices, they were on board and supportive. And so we had to make this as much as possible the workers' voices rather than sort of union officials. Well, that was my follow-up question was uh, in terms of the stories of the workers and their experiences, the, the narrative of it. How, how central was that for your campaign? Huge. It was huge. And we, like, as soon as we came out of lockdown, when we were in our intensive bargaining period, we filmed stories with almost all of our delegates within a couple of days that we could put up on social media. So each delegate being able to tell their own story, having worked through COVID in their particular role, whether it was as a cleaner or station staff or as a driver, and what that had meant for them and why they were involved in the negotiation and why they supported um, the union claims. Take us to the finish line uh, when you get the result. What what, what happened just before that enabled you to, to finally get a breakthrough? So we had a, I mean, we had a pretty dramatic run right before the EA ended where the Minister for Transport, David Elliott, walked into a meeting that we were having and said, there will not be any more negotiations if you do not accept our offer. Um, and their offer didn't include fixing the train. Um, we're going to terminate the enterprise agreement. But we had to end. At that point, we were like, okay, that's that's pretty dramatic. Um, so we scrambled, we filed a good faith bargaining case, we moved to a, a bit of a litigation strategy within 24 hours. Um, and then we did as much media as we possibly can about what was going on. We escalated our industrial action um, quite seriously, but not enough to actually shut the network down so that we weren't harming the public. We did as much as we could to harm management. And um, as we approached sort of November, the government capitulated. They they called for meetings. They wanted those meetings supervised by um, the Fair Work Commission. We would attend those meetings and they just very quickly started giving us stuff and agreeing to things um, rapidly, so we we start to therefore escalate as much as we could in terms of all our, our other pressure points to try and bring it to a head. And then on the last day of negotiation, what became the last day of negotiations, um, the final sticking point became what's the wage claim? They'd agreed to fix the train. They agreed to all the other major claims. Um, they they were refusing to move off the government's wages policy, uh, except to offer our members an additional $4,500 payment, which was a lot higher than what the rest of the public service had received. And so we we came up with a compromise position where we said to them, well, you're telling us that this is fair. You're, you know, 3% for the first year and 3.5% for the second year is fair. Why don't you give us that pay rise? And then we applied to the Fair Work Commission to determine whether we deserve an additional pay rise on top of that. 
right? That way you don't have to breach your wages policy without someone else looking at it. Um, and we can go to our members and say there's going to be an independent third party who's going to look at this claim and see whether we can receive some more money. Um, and they agreed to that. It worked for them. Um, so that that was the kind of final moment in it. Uh, and then we agreed to withdraw our industrial action on that basis and we're moving towards a vote now. And you're doing the vote right now? The vote is, is they're doing the road shows to advertise the EA and talk to questions with the members at the moment. They'll move to a vote quite soon and the um, Fair Work Commission is in the process of the hearings to hear whether the members deserve something more than what they've already received as well. That's remarkable. It's unbelievable. Um, talk us through, I don't know if you've had a chance to reflect on the campaign, but I want to get a sense from you in terms of uh, some pluses and some deltas or some key takeaways. Your yeah. time again, what were some of the challenges or what would you do do differently with the benefit of hindsight? Um, I, I mean, I, I think this is probably something you say at the end of every negotiation, but I think we need to prepare more um, than we did. And, and we did prepare a lot, but there were things that through this one, I think we could have prepared more earlier on. So for example, we, we had 150 claims. Um, at one point during the negotiation, we decided it would be a good tactic to serve the employer with an entire EA that reflected all of our claims, including all drafted clauses. But we hadn't drafted those clauses at that point in time, so we were scrambling to get 150 clauses drafted within a couple of days, um, which was a huge mammoth exercise, and I'm very grateful to all of our industrial officers who, who did that and put that together. In hindsight, I think it probably would have been better to have that before we started negotiating, having every claim drafted, just so that when we were talking to the claims, we were talking to a, a very clear mm. um, clause, so that I think that would have helped. I know that's quite technical, but having those things done before you start negotiation frees you up to actually focus on more of the kind of... Um, the unknowns when you're in the negotiation. So I think we could have prepared a little bit more. Um, I think, you know, we probably couldn't have prepared for what happened with the politics because it just happened, it evolved so quickly and so uniquely in a way. But next time around, I will prepare for these types of scenarios. Um, just, you know, what happens if the minister changes? Who are the where's the pressure points for different politicians that we might have to deal with? Um, you know, how do we, how do we work through those things as well? And in terms of a couple of key learnings that if you could just crystallize that and then give that to other unionists out there in terms of the work that they're doing, what was, a, what were some of the learnings for, for you guys on this journey? So one thing for me that really stood out all the way through was, you know, when I was being, trained as a negotiator and I was learning negotiating skills, there were certain tropes that you were told and you just do them, but you, you don't know whether they're, they're effective or not, right? And in this EA, I actually found out why you do these things. So, for example, you know, you, you're always told be ambitious with your claims, always be ambitious. 
you know, that will motivate your members and that will get you more buying and, and it will push the employer. Yep. Fine, that's fine. I didn't, I never saw that play out as well as what I saw in this EA. We started out this EA when our major claim was we wanted the government to modify a train. The cost the government was saying that was going to be was $1.3 billion. We're asking a government through an EA negotiation to fix a train that they think is safe. It's not safe. We know it's not safe, but they think it's safe and have told the public for six years that it's safe. That's an incredibly ambitious claim. Um, and ultimately, we got them there by just holding the line, motivating our members, making sure our members knew why that was so important, and then going out and educating the community as well and just applying that pressure. So um, being ambitious, having 150 claims, pretty ambitious. Um, I don't recommend it. It's a logistical nightmare. <laughs> but again, it worked. Like there were a number of claims in our log that if you had asked me two years ago, I would have said there's no way they will allow our members to wear shorts on the network. No way in hell. Why would they agree to that? You know, um, it's so minor a thing. They'll just never do it. That's now in the EA. Our members can wear shorts. So, get that. so including as much as you can, as many sort of important things to your members as possible, you know, you do have a chance, if you get the unique EA situation that we do, you will have a chance to pick those things up and lock them in forever and a day into your, your EA. Um, so th those those tropes, I think, you know, really, really came clear through this one. Holding the line was the other one. Like there were a couple of times during the CA where I thought, Maybe we're, like, we've hit a brick wall on this and we're just wasting everyone's time or wasting a lot of resources and we're just not going to get there and we should compromise. And I, at one point, actually went and spoke to, um, you know, Brains Trust and mine about this and said, you know, what do you think? Someone who's far more experienced in negotiations than me and we're doing a lot longer. Um, and when I spoke to him about it, he said, just hold it, hold the line, keep going, they're going to crack. And sure enough, they did, you know, so sticking to your strategy, I think, is the other one. You know, we say all these things often enough, but it's not to have a really tough EA that you actually see that those things do work. There's, a, I mean, from what I can gather from our conversation tonight, there's a nimbleness, though, to your campaign as well. I mean, obviously, you know, you went into an unprecedented lockdown because of a global pandemic. You had to start negotiating yeah. on uh, on a new techno technological platform. You had to deal with that. You you know you found new tools like WhatsApp to help communicate. You leveraged new resources that you probably didn't know you had at the start of the campaign. So there is a nimbleness. I think you're probably being a bit too um, uh, uh, bashful in terms of the successes. I think there's some stuff you should be proud of as well in terms of the way that you did modify your strategy, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I, and I, I'm really proud of our group. I think that's right. I think. You know, Jane McAlevey, who's a negotiator in the US, writes a lot about big bargaining units, and she talks about having a really big kind of delegate bargaining unit. And so I sort of looked to her, because we've got 80 delegates, looked to her to, how do you manage this? What are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? And I think the advantage of that is, you know, you've got 80 people invested who are going to give you ideas. They're not always going to be good ideas, but some of them are going to be much better than your own ideas. And so... Having a big group like that, logistically difficult, but such an intellectual advantage in terms of coming up with a good strategy. Um, so if you can afford the resources to manage it, 
you know, then actually you are at an advantage in having that bigger group um, because you've just got so many more people who know what's going on. But I think that's that gave us an overwhelming advantage over management because we had 80 people every day in the room who work on site. And so they knew intimately what the pressure points were. What So we would have managers talk about things and our guys would correct them because they actually do it. Kind of like rostering and different so that's just not going to work because we do it, it doesn't happen that way um or it becomes the industrial action they know look if we don't turn off electrical power this weekend they can't construct the new metro tunnel that's going to delay their contract with john holland that's 30 million dollars in a week gone and so we would we could do things like that because we just had this great resourcing our members and our delegates to tell us what's what was going on that management doesn't have um you name checked uh, jane mcleod when you mentioned before when you first said that there was 80 people in the room i imagine i immediately thought of her and i think that uh that example of that campaign that they ran in a hospital with the seiu where they basically brought as many people into the room to negotiate yeah. it, the room got so big they had to go and move to like a church hall or something to have the negotiations it's, uh, it's reminiscent uh of of, of that I, I did have a plan at one point like should we just live stream the meeting so everyone could see what was happening? yes absolutely <laughs> yeah um yeah maybe we'll get that next time previously when we sort of talked about it we didn't know how to do it with technology but now we actually do know how to do it it's a way to do it indeed uh, look, uh, Thomas, can I say to you, congratulations, not just obviously the hard work that you put in yourself personally. I'm sure it must have had a massive impact on your own personal life because I'm just trying to calculate the amount of hours that you must have dedicated to these negotiations over such a long period of time and keeping the faith in, uh, in both yourself, your own abilities, your leadership um, and the work that you do as a trade unionist, but also extend that congratulations to everyone involved in the negotiations um, from the, the the union officials, but also to the delegates and the members across those six unions, those 16,000 workers. Just a great, great story. And I really do appreciate you taking the time out of, uh, I think you're having a bit of a break at the moment to just to share with us this great successful campaign for the trade union movement in New South Wales. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Really appreciate being able to talk to it as well. It's been a fun conversation. We'll have to get you back on the show later on and let us know how you, one went with the negotiations, but also you've got a state election coming up as well in um, 68 days' time. Um, so I'm sure there's plenty of other things for the union, for unions use of Wales to do to uh, ensure they flip a government. Yeah, we're looking forward to that one as well. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Social Democratic was brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events 
that will energize the community online and offline and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. To find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign.